Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for answered prayer. And Lord, uh, I know there's still those that, that we're praying for that have yet to have the answer. We pray you'd encourage them that they would know that you're with them through the trial and that there's a purpose for it and that you're going to bring them to the other side and be with them through it. So encourage them, Lord. And Lord, I ask that you, your presence, even as we've sensed it during the songs and during the worship, during the baptism, that your presence just be with us and help us hear the word. Give us ears to hear. And thank you for the detailed instruction from the word of God. What a gift it is to us, how it guides us. Help us to take these things and apply them and see that they're implemented in our church. And thank you for the challenge they present us. Be with us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Oh, I forgot my Bible. That's right. <laughs> and we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. So in honor of God's word, would you stand with me as I read this passage to you? We're going to be reading the entire chapter of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you're arrogant. Ought you not to rather, rather to, to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil persons from among you. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. Well, if you're a guest with us and you've come to this, happened to uh, have joined us when we're in 1 Corinthians 5, you're probably going, whoa. <laughs> what was that? Uh, gonna, <laughs> we're going to hear this morning. But that's what we do. We work through the scriptures. And the reason we do that is so you get, you don't avoid any topics. 
You know, some people that preach topically, you hear their favorite topics over and over. But when you go through the scripture, you have to hit it all. And, and this is one of those places that this, in fact, this whole section of 1 Corinthians, um, there's, it's almost all addressing problems in the church. And um, at first he was addressing the immaturity in the way that the Corinthians form factions over who was the best teacher and who was following whom and so forth. And he told them, just stop boasting in men and quit deceiving yourselves thinking that you're spiritually mature. Thinking that, that they were wise, they were needing to abandon worldly wisdom and embrace what the world calls the foolishness of Christ. He addressed those issues first, but now he's moving on to the shocking examples of their spiritual immaturity. And the, the, the poor witness that they were giving the city of Corinth. Their behavior in several areas um, he's going to address just was not Christ-like. So they were poorly representing him to the city. Verse 1, again, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that's not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. One reason many people claim that they won't be a part of a local church is from some experience of sin that they've seen in the church or some blatant wrong that they've seen done that was never addressed, just kind of polished over. And that sets up the accusation of hypocrisy. They say, well, they preach one thing, but they themselves don't do it. And then the hypocrisy can stem from this false concept of grace, and many commentators think that's what was happening here in Corinth. Well, God's gracious to us. He forgives our sins, so we don't need to deal with these issues that are that are in our congregation. And... Or it may be just that they're afraid to do the confrontation that's necessary. In other words, they don't care enough to confront. You know, we, we ac accept discipline in education. If you cheat, you'll probably fail. We accept discipline in the workplace. If you steal or you don't do your job, you get fired. But when it comes to the church, most churches shy away from discipline. After all, most of the world seems like wisdom's negotiable. Jonathan Lehman says the average person in Western culture today, every attachment is negotiable. We are all free agents, and every relationship and life station is a contract that can be renegotiated or canceled. Whether we're dealing with the prince or the parents or the spouse or the salesman, the boss, the ballot box, the courtroom judge, or of course the local church, I'm principally obligated to myself and maximizing my life, my liberty, my pursuit of happiness. I retain power to veto everything. But in fact, we understand that discipline is healthy and necessary. Paul will give us um, these different situations in which there must be discipline. And he's going to tell us the reason why and the outcome that's, that we hope for. And the situation here was a man was sleeping with his stepmother. Now, the tense of the verb implies this is not just a one-time affair, but an ongoing habitual relationship. 
And the whole church had become aware that it was happening. That's what we get from the word actually. It can be translated wholly or completely. So everyone in the church was aware that this was going on. And the church was refusing to deal with this issue that was so vile that even, and now Corinth was a, it was such a debauched city that if someone was totally perverted, they would call him a Corinthian. But even the Corinthians thought this was a terrible thing and forbade it. This act was specifically forbidden in the scriptures in Leviticus 18.8. Now, even in this case, the father may have been married to a woman that was much younger, more the age of his son. And if the culture acknowledges the law of good, God is good, then they're testifying that in some cases, the conscience God has given us aligns with the word of God. In other words, God put his moral laws within us. And even if we don't have the word of God, we're without excuse because he's given us a conscience. I imagine that when these verses were read, can you imagine, um, you know, the congregation's, thinks they're getting away with this and that they're all doing really well and they're really super spiritual. And then you get to this chapter. Well, the first part was pretty rough too, but then you get to this chapter and they go, uh-oh, the apostle Paul knows what's going on. They knew Chloe went from their congregation to that congregation and had spilled the beans, so to speak, and let Paul know what was really happening. The report of incest, in short, knocks the props out from under their grandiosity. It betrays that they are not wise, that they should not be held in honor, and that he needs to come to them like a, a tutor with a rod in hand to punish them. But what's even more egregious in Paul's mind is the church's tolerance of this blatant sin. Verse two, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this thing be removed from among you. So notice that the emphasis here is not on the, the sin that's being committed, but the church's ex, just acceptance of it. Apparently they thought nothing should be done. There was no confrontation. There was no repentance. Perhaps some argued that salvation's paid for all sin and the man must be under the grace of God and look how tolerant and gracious we are and not saying anything. And in fact, it says they were proud of it, proud that they were so quote unquote gracious. But Paul tells them they are arrogant and should rather be mourning that such a sin was in their midst. It was a horrible example to the city it may indicate the young man really was not truly born again. The family would never be the same. Paul commanded that the man be removed from the fellowship, which is the spiritual covering that the church provides. A church that does not mourn over sin in its midst is in trouble. The church's inaction indicated a deeper problem. It was a problem similar to the factionalism that we saw in the earlier part of the, of the letter. They were acting like the world. And, and in, the, in this case, worse than the world. 
Look how tolerant we are. We trust in God's grace. You know, this is happening in many churches today. In fact, the Methodist denomination advertises their tolerance of sinful lifestyles. It's amazing, isn't it? That, that churches would even advertise. They invite everyone to come hear the gospel, and that's a good thing. But failing to teach about the damage that sin does in one's life and to the community is failing to share what the results of receiving the gospel should look like. In fact, it's distorting it completely. It destroys the witness to the observing world. It affects the attitudes of those within the congregation towards sin. Tolerating blatant ongoing sin is like telling the congregation, it's okay to drink a little poison. Just make sure you got it under control. Sin will not only harm the person committing the sin, but it will also tempt those who are seeing the, that sin continue without any apparent repercussions. Verses 3 through 6a. For though absent in the body, I am present in spirit, and as if, in, yes, as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. So he's talking about what we call today excommunication. And the purpose is to bring the man to full repentance and salvation. It's not to destroy him or, or get rid of him or not to think of him anymore. It's so that he can be restored. Because when he gets out from the, underneath the covering of the local church, the enemy is going to be able to afflict that person emotionally and perhaps even physically. But God will use this to help him see how sinful his act was and to bring him to repentance. This is the goal of putting someone out of salvation, salvation of their soul and the protection of the church while avoiding the appearance of hypocrisy. It was an action taken before the whole congregation, not to harm the man, but to help him. And that not only warns others of the consequences of sin, but it shows the blessing of the covering of the church and presents a consistent witness to the community. It's my understanding that Paul's expression, my spirit is present, is similar to how we would say, I'll, I'll be with you in spirit. In other words, we're in one mind and one decision in this. Now, it could also be, as we would probably in Sedona more like the interpretation because it fits with some of the stuff that goes on here, is like, do you know the story of Elisha? Um, when uh, Naaman came to him for the healing of his leprosy. And Gehazi, his servant, you know, the, Naaman offered all this reward because he was cleansed of his leprosy after he dipped in the Jordan. And, and Naaman offered all these, these treasures to Elisha, and he said, no, I don't, want, I, don't, I don't need anything. Well, after Naaman left, Gehazi followed him and, and told him, told Naaman this lie. He said, oh, two prophets have come. Could we just have uh, two sets of clothing and a little gold and silver for them to help them on their way? And so Gehazi 
gives, I mean, uh, Naaman gives them to Gehazi. Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, gets back, and Gehazi said, or Naaman, I'm sorry, Elisha says to Gehazi, did you know, not know that my spirit went with you and that I saw what Naaman gave you? Now, how does that happen? I don't know. I've never experienced that. I don't know anybody that has, but maybe that's the case here with Paul as well. His spirit what may have been, I prefer the other interpretation that it's more like I'm with you in spirit, but it may be that Paul was supernaturally uh, spiritually present and saw how the church just uh, was arrogant about this sin in their midst and that he would be present with them when they made this judgment. Then the part of this verse is difficult to translate because we can't, it's not clear how in the name of the Lord Jesus and with the power of the Lord Jesus to what, to who, what or to whom it is applied. I think the ESV has it right here that they're applied to the whole assembly. They're gathering in the name of the Lord Jesus and the assembly has the power of the Lord Jesus in their judgment. The Lord Jesus Christ did not die on the cross in Calvary in order to give his people license to sin. God does not condemn sin in the sinner and then condone it in the saint. Judgment begins at the house of God. Now this is this uh, deliver him over to Satan. That's quite a frightening expression, isn't it? For the destruction of the flesh. It reminds us, or it should remind us, of Job, right? Satan came before Job and, and asked Job why, why God treated him so good. And, and God says, consider my righteous servant Job. And Satan says, yeah, it's because you take such good care of him. Take away some of his blessings and he'll curse you to your face. And so the Lord says, okay, go ahead, take it away. You can afflict him, but don't take his life. And I think Paul's referring to that actually, referring to that expression because the story of Job is after all he went through, he ended up in a much deeper relationship with God and twice as blessed as he was before. So Paul actually may be referring to Job, calling up this situation that Job went through for the salvation of the immoral man. But as in this case, blatant sin can take us out from under the protection for the purpose of disciplining us. How many today take their participation in church lightly? Merely a thing that we do once a week. Is there a covering of protection from Satan in that case? Can we expect the same if we just visit church once a week and have no commitment to our fellow believers? What's necessary for true fellowship that comes with that covering? What's missed when you don't have it? Well, here are a few of the benefits, and I think we should really consider these. And thank God for these. We have communal worship. Oh, I love the time of praise and worship as the worship team leads us in praise songs to God. We pray for one another. The sharing of our burdens with one another. The meeting of needs. 
the oneness in Christ, sharing the joys and the griefs, a united mission, a common understanding, and encouragement and building one another up. If we're not receiving and giving these things, I don't think you can say that you were truly in fellowship. And we wouldn't miss it if we were forced to leave the church. Because many churches lack these qualities, the concept of excommunication is meaningless. Do you see what I'm saying? You have to have that, that experience of, of community and and the love of one another before you would actually miss being separated from them. They don't miss anything because they didn't have anything to be missed. What would you miss about those benefits I mentioned if you were put out of the church today? If those qualities aren't there now, how can we help bring them about? It's important to note that sins that are not public but brought to the attention of leadership are dealt with privately. If there's repentance, then there has to be forgiveness and acceptance. If immoral sins continue, the elders should consider whether it's important to protect the congregation and for the offender's salvation to put them out of the church. The sin in this passage was known by the whole church and tolerated by it. 6b, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So when there's blatant sin or destructive false teaching in the church, church discipline is required. Now you can, it, it can come about in different ways, but Matthew 18 is one way, although Matthew 18 is really a pattern for, for us when we are offended personally. But we can follow that in this case too. First go one-on-one, -on -one. talk to the person. And most of the time, the person will respond and be repentant. If not, bring somebody with you. And if that doesn't work, bring it to the elders. Discipline must be done in love with the hope of restoration. Now, we should not be the morality police acting on gossip or unsubstantiated accusations. This has to do with sins of a grossly immoral nature that all become aware of. We recently had a case where of someone who thought they were aware of sins in, within the congregation and that they were being ignored. But they didn't know that the elders had already talked to those people. They'd already repent, repented and been restored. Most of the congregation was unaware of the situation and didn't need to know. Nor should the elders share confidential conversations. Who would want to come and confess to the elders if they thought they're going to bring it up and tell everybody about it? Yikes. Each situation must be dealt with considering the restoration of the person caught in sin and the welfare of the church body. In verse 7, Paul uses the shadow of the Passover to show the reality that is pictured. Before Jews celebrated Passover, they would carefully take the leaven out of their homes. They searched the entire home, 
sweep up any leaven that they can find and take it out of the house, which is a picture of sin being removed. In scripture, leaven is a picture of sin. Jesus is the reality of the Passover lamb. All the Passover lambs throughout the Jews' history pointed to Jesus, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Paul may be playing on the Greek word translated arrogant in verse 2, which means puffed up, literally, which is what leaven does to the bread. It puffs it up. I've witnessed immorality infect a congregation before when the pastor's sin became known to everybody and the church tried to cover it up. The result was divorce after divorce as people felt their sin of unfaithfulness could be excused. The leaven wasn't quickly removed, and so it spread. Paul's concern and emphasis in this passage is the arrogance of the congregation's attitude towards sin because the damage that attitude can bring will be devastating to the church as a whole. The unleavened lump should be the church, (laughs) where we gently and lovingly correct one another. If we truly love one another, can we do any less? I mean, it's just not loving to see a person caught in sin and not say something in love and gently to them. And when we do, we may find we misinterpreted the situation or that the person had already repented. A healthy church looks out for one another. This means informing the entire congregation that we're cutting someone off from fellowship will be a rare event. In fact, uh, we've never had to do it here. Such action is for those who do not care that they are sinning and don't care how it affects the church. They see no need to change and they resent the suggestion that they're sinning. Most cases receive correction with humility and request prayer to be free of the sin that has captured them. So we submit to one another in love and reverence for Christ. Pastor Um wrote, speaking the truth in love is admittedly uncomfortable in our cultural context, but it's absolutely necessary. In fact, it's the only way to truly love. In a healthy community, you will rarely see formal discipline because there's a self-correcting ecosystem of regular, gracious, informal discipline happening all the time. And that's what I see going on in our congregation. Verse eight, let us therefore celebrate the festival, he's referring to Passover, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now, he's, when, every time we take communion, we're, we're really looking back on the Passover, which is what they were celebrating. And so he says, when we do it, uh, let's do it, not checking our hearts, making sure that there's not animosity toward one another, that there's not unforgiveness, but taking the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So we ce- celebrate communion, which is the new Passover, not as a ritual while still hating and clinging to evil in our hearts or even allowing blatant sin in the loaf that is the church, but rather with the sincerity of accepting what Jesus has done for us and being truthful before God. 
Just as the Jews cleansed their homes of leaven, so we must be sure habitual sin is not allowed to, be, to remain in the house of God. The communion is that time of soul searching to make sure the leaven is gone from our own hearts. Verse 9 and 10, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers, idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what? Have I to do with judging outsiders? Is not those inside the church whom you are to judge? So apparently there's this missing letter of Paul that was written before this one, warning them of this potential problem. And we've never, it's never been uncovered. And I just assume, well, we didn't need that letter because God's sovereign. And so we don't have it. Corrupt company tends to corrupt us. The Greek word translated here as associate, not to associate with them, implies to keep intimate and close company. And not to eat with them probably implies not having communion with them. Because you see, in the early church, communion was a time when they would get together and eat an entire meal. The whole meal was called a love feast and they were celebrating what Christ had done for them. We've changed it quite a bit, and part of the reason it was changed was because of, of the letter to the Corinthians. We'll see it later in Corinthians. When we come to the communion celebration, we have to examine our hearts first, see that we're not harboring hardness towards God or our fellow man. And if we find we can't, relinquish that hardness by repentance, we should not take communion. We're warned not to, in fact, later in this letter. If we recognize our sin and repent, then communion meal reminds us the grace of God will help us change and make amends to anyone we've been harboring anger toward. This passage tells us that we can associate with sinners in the world to lead them to Christ, but if someone's sexually immoral, greedy, a swindler, a drunkard, reviler, idolater, and calls themselves a brother and yet refuses to change, we are to separate them from the church fellowship. So last week we talked about three different situations, uh, one of which we had at the beginning of this letter about factions and about false teaching, and now he adds a few more issues that are important enough to bring to light if there's no repentance. You know, the church over uh, the last few decades has gotten a black eye from pastors who were greedy, who took advantage of the financial situation and of their freedom um, in that regard. And that's covered here by swindlers and the greedy. And... Um, we disassociate that, that person for the testimony of the, of the church, for that person's sake, hoping they'll be restored, and to protect the young, the babes in Christ, the new believers from their influence. 
New Testament commentator David Garland said that from these two words, greed and swindler, the reader is supposed to get the picture of those who enrich themselves unfairly, the rapacious, the grasping, the have-mores who insatiably hankering after more causes them to completely, disregard completely the have-nots, to kick them down the ladder, to trample their rights and ignore their needs in order to advance upward at any price. The church has more readily condemned those guilty of sexual sins, but Paul regards this kind of unjust acquisitiveness to be no less nefarious, to be in the same boat. Verse 12, or 13, God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So Paul was addressing the, the church's reaction to this unrepentant sin. The man's sin was a secondary issue. We're quick to condemn sin in, in the world around us, but what do we do about blatant sin within the church? What do we do about habitual sin outside of marriage when it becomes known throughout the whole church body and does not change after being confronted? Are there examples of greed hurting others within the church? Now, this is not about struggling with past sinful patterns while seeking help to become victorious, but rather those who are of the attitude, I don't care what you think. How serious are we about holiness and our testimony to the community? Part of the problem is that the local church isn't that tight-knit community of believers that it was in the first century. It's become a place where you bring the unbeliever to hear the gospel because we're uncomfortable sharing it ourselves. Most churches would be hard-pressed to even attempt to follow Paul's advice in this passage. If they did enforce this type of discipline, would the guilty person even care? It comes back to the need to become what the church is meant to be, a group of people who've come out of the world to belong to Jesus and therefore belong to one another. We meet to build one another up and encourage one another. We're a family led by the word of God, praying together for one another's needs, gently correcting one another in love, sacrificing for one another. Certainly there will be those who attend who who don't have that commitment and dedication, but if they see it in action, they'll want to be part of it. See the description in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16, for what we should be to make up that kind of a church. In fact, let's, let me read that to you. We have a little time left. Ephesians chapter 4, 1 through 16. And as, we, as I read it to you, think about how how that describes this kind of church that you would want or you would be brokenhearted if you had to leave it. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have received with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace, one body, one spirit, just as you are called the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who's over all and through all and in all. But grace has been given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. 
And saying he descended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who ascended fire, higher than all the heavens, that he might fill all things. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of Son of God in mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part's working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Each attribute in there could be a whole sermon. If we were like that, a person committing such an act would be loved enough to put them out in hopes that they would be part of such a body. Such egregious sins are evidence that they are not surrendered to Jesus. So how can we become even more united in spirit and love so that a person would be brought to repentance if they were cut off? I think it's up to each of us individually by the help of the Holy Spirit to move toward that dedication and commitment. And I see it. I see it developing in many of you. And I would suggest that each of us ask ourselves what we need to do to reach that level of dedication and commitment to one another. As living stones that make up this place of worship, how and where do you fit? What's your part? Are we being selfish in some area so that it's keeping this church from being what it's meant to be? What needs to change in us? And only when we become that loving and caring body that constantly meets one another's needs can discipline serve this purpose of bringing a person to repentance. Amen? Amen. I'm, we're going to celebrate communion now, and we saved it to the end of the service because the passage talked so, so directly to it, saying that we're like that lump and we need to remove the leaven and we need to come in sincerity and truth to partake of that Passover lamb. So would the, would the ushers come forward? <clears throat>